Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. Morning, Bill. Good morning, Holly. So, um, I don't mean this in any sort of self-serving way, and I hope no one takes it that way. But I doubt that people have any idea how much you and I think about and work on ordinary life between Sundays. I know. I think doing this with you has given me a huge appreciation for that. It's a, I think about it almost all the time. Now, you know, not when I'm seeing clients and doing other things, but in my idle moments, I'm making notes and thinking about yes. it. I even, I even went to bed last night kind of rehearsing uh, how I might change the introduction that I've already written uh-huh. for this coming Sunday, a title which I've stolen and i will acknowledge this from um shelby spong's book in the in one of the introductory chapters spong has about it seems to be five or six introductory chapters to right yeah it's a it's a lot of introductory chapters (laughs) it's it's a lot yeah and and in in one of them he has this phrase that the that his goal is the same as he sees the goal of john to be which is to um, take things, it's a journey beyond, Mm -hmm. it's a journey beyond religion, beyond uh, doctrine, creed, and belief. Yes. And I love that because somebody asked me after class last Sunday, something about having to do with the authorship of John, which we're going to get into. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there, there are five books in the New Testament that are attributed to an author named John. Yeah. And none of them are written by the same person. Mm-hmm. And um, so there are multiple authors of these five books. And I was thinking in just giving a little brief history uh, and detail to do my, you know, religious literacy bit that uh, most people didn't grow up with this kind. Most people who went to church didn't grow up with this kind of information. Mm-hmm. We thought John wrote John and Matthew wrote Matthew and mm-hmm. Moses wrote Genesis and David wrote the Psalms and that sort of thing. And so when it became in most Christian churches, both Roman Catholic and Protestant in the United States, somewhere I'm going to say around 1950s forward that the kind of biblical scholarship that had been Europe had been in Europe mostly Germany since the mid 19th century or even earlier actually when that began to filter from some seminaries down into some parishes some people embraced it enthusiastically saying, well, I didn't know that, but the majority of population where I was just went berserk. They Mm -hmm. didn't like it. You're messing with my Bible. 
don't tell me this sort of thing. And yet I think it's that mindset that has us in some of the current social problems that we Mm -hmm. have. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're going to address those too. But I'm going to speak Sunday to to authorship and that sort of biblical literacy, and how that is an example of going beyond religion. Yeah, religion as we have known it, we need to go beyond. And um, you said something to me yesterday, which I want to also make sure that we assure people of that we are not going to lose sight of the issues of radical justice or injustice that needs to be addressed in an ongoing way in our culture. And John was doing that too. Right. But he was doing it in a mindset that we're not used to. So we're going to have to do a lot of translation. And in language that we're not used to, what what sort of really made me because you know, the last Sunday we focused on kind of the first 10, nine or 10 verses of the prologue. And the beginning was the word, the word was with God and God was the word. Um, and as we get a little bit later into the prologue, I was reading from uh, a guy who's an Afro-Latino theologian here in the United States about this bit of John, the next couple verses being about radical inclusion, regardless of um, who your parents are, where you were born. You you know what I'm saying? Because all of these traditions, what lineage you come from, what um, class you belong to, what group of people you belong to were very important in inclusion in the synagogue, inclusion in the political and religious structures of the day. And this guy's saying, you know, in this part of John, we're actually seeing him go same as what we are attributing to Jesus. Mm-mm, none of that matters. You can have a whole new relationship to the sacred, regardless of all of these social race class standings. Um, so I, I, I was re-encouraged, I guess, to really read this prologue as that setting the stage, setting that stage for John and, and the stories that follow, or as you say, the entire book is a parable about radical inclusion. Um, And this radical, what Spong says is this radical oneness with God. I mean, he very clearly says, we need to take God out of the sky and realize that God is within. Nothing different than what you've been saying for how long? (laughs) Yeah. But, um, you know, I think whenever we hear someone in the institution, meaning the religious or church institution say that, it's a little jarring. Uh, a little earth shattering. You know, I think, and, and we can bring this in too, which I'll rely on you and your discipline to do because you know much more about it than I do. But I think this is exactly one of the reasons that I fell in love with Ilya Delio because one of Ilya's metaphors, I don't know if you remember hearing her say this, is that um, the cosmos is our monastery. Mm. And in John, Although John, again, did not have, whoever wrote John, did not have our worldview. That is exactly what John means when he says, God loved the world. Mm-hmm. It's everything, everybody, mm-hmm. at least in the world as John knew it. Mm-hmm. And um, what he was stepping away from was the creedal belief 
of the Judaism of that time. So as again, here's an example of going beyond. We, we go beyond, and now for us, um, we have to go beyond the creeds that were written in the fourth centuries uh, for Christianity if we're going to survive. Yeah. You know, and I think it's always important to realize that even if there was kind of like cosmic language, for example, there is cosmic language in Genesis. There is cosmic language throughout the Bible. There is cosmic language in Hinduism. There is in so many traditions, there is this kind of mystery that we can't describe, but the cosmologies or understanding of the cosmology that we now think of as cosmology was so much smaller, you know, and it, the, the people who were writing and living didn't think that the world existed beyond where they were writing and living. We hadn't had um, intra-ocean um, exploration yet. You know, we hadn't, there the mm-hmm. people as that we know of had not, we now have evidence that says that no, there were actually indigenous Americans living on this continent, maybe up to 20,000 years ago, um, because they found some uh, fossils, anthropological fossils that indicate there was some life here much longer ago than Christopher Columbus. And, (laughs) you know, but, um, but all I'm saying is that there, there wasn't this sort of like cross-cultural exchange happening yet. Um, And I think that that's important to keep in mind. And this is for me, why evolution is so important to theology, because we have to consider how our cosmologies have evolved, how our understanding and development of the world has evolved and therefore be able to do the same with our beliefs. Um, So, you know, people have heard me talk a lot about Carl Jasper's use of the phrase, uh, the first axial age is a time Mm -hmm. when these religions uh, all over the world, um, and I mean, not all, yeah, oh, okay, all over the world in major populated areas, came up with the same spiritual insight of love your neighbor, don't do to somebody what you don't want to have done unto you. Mm-hmm. That was not the quote beginning of religion. That was there. There there was a time that goes way back to probably when Homo sapiens came on the scene, began organizing in groups, when um, that led to what Oren Barfield calls the great participation. Final where, part, original participation uh, and final original, participation. Yeah, original participation where, mm-hmm. uh, and you see this especially in Hinduism, where everything was sacred. There was God or the sacred expressed in everything Mm -hmm. and uh what we have been the recipient of for the last 500 years has been um kind of the tragic non-participation sure yeah all this dualistic stuff and separate stuff and divisive stuff yeah i love owen barfield and i think that um you know the final the original participation is what i've also um learned is called having a compact cosmology, right? There is no real delineation between the sacred and profane, but the compactness of what we knew allowed that to be kind of uh, more understood, more readily understood. Then as knowledge began to increase, we put sort of knowledge in mind up here 
and human participation down here. And then as institutions began to um, develop in size and power, we put the institution at the top of the pyramid. So there's now this complete separation between the people and the cosmos. And the only way through it is through this one person, through a priest, through a king, you know, these kind of um, one, one people. And you and I have both said, and then we have these prophets that come along and say, no, get rid of the pyramid. And there's a fluidity between, we go back to original participation in a new way, mm-hmm. you know, so we come back to, a, this is the cosmic Ouroboros too, you know, we come back to the mouth of the snake, and, but in a new way, with more mm-hmm. knowledge, with deeper understandings, and this invitation that Owen Barfield issues to kind of have participation in the, in the world Um, I love some of the analogies he uses. One of them is um, this return to the clear lake of meaning, but with this experience of having lived many, 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 many ages, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? So I think that what is in John and what we're trying to say, I mean, it's not, let's be clear, this is not original with you, not original with me. We're riding on the backs of scholarship that, it goes far beyond what I know. But what John is saying and what we're trying to say is that separating God from the cosmos and everything that the cosmos is, is impossible. Mm-hmm. And John says that. John yes. is saying that. And when we get into what is called the Book of Signs, yeah. Then we'll start talking about that in in much more concrete ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this Sunday, let's let's make a commitment that this Sunday we're going to kind of do this clarification and recap, and then we're going to finish going through the prologue of John and talk about in every instance where we are being issued an invitation to go beyond, to go mm-hmm. beyond where we are, and that that's the invitation that. The Jesus narrative, I think this is in the other Gospels as well, but certainly the Jesus narrative in John is come to the crossover, crossover ethnicity, crossover your belief system, crossover your religious practice. And we're going to see John talk about this in what when he, when the the Johannan community first came up with these stories, they were radical. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a kind of boundaryless, borderless God, right? Um, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, this that's so important to just keep pulling ourselves back to, because if we lose that thread, we will have lost the purpose of John, I think. I've never thought about a dead disciple so much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well... You know, I, I, you'll have to help keep me uh, uh, not from getting sidetracked, but I just think it's so fascinating. I was thinking this morning and doing some writing about this that here, we'll call him John. I don't even know who it was. <laughs> Here's John in, in somewhere in the 90s, somewhere in the 90s, as he finally gets to put this stuff down. And he... He clearly knew about the other other writings, but he doesn't he doesn't use them. 
mm-hmm. because this Johannan community has over eight, nine decades. Mm-hmm. That's a long time. Mm-hmm. They have been telling each other these stories and polishing them and doing this stuff, not writing them down. Right. It was all oral. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. um, I, I remember when I was in, in seminary that the, the way, and I've shared this story before, the way that a professor of New Testament got us to see that the Nicodemus story was pure fiction. Uh, he, after he, he taught us this, he said, now, how do you imagine that this writing came to be? Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he said, we don't know, but I imagine that a group of Jesus followers in this Johannine community gathered as was their custom for a meal. And they would share these remembrances, not that they directly had, Mm -hmm. but that their mothers and fathers and grandmothers and grandfathers had. Mm -hmm. And they would say, Oh, do you remember when Eli told the story about, Oh yeah. And what I think that means now is, and so the stories began to get shaped Mm -hmm. and, um, we're in that tradition. That New Testament professor believed very much in what he called an open canon. He said, we're still writing the scripture. Mm, I think that's such an important idea, um, which also makes me think about the, the, the point I made. And I, I think I want to keep in mind as we write is this, this interplay between history, nostalgia, and memory, right? Um, what is historical about this text is that it is, is that it existed, is that it probably involved a gathering of people, as you say. What is nostalgic about this text is what we've made it to mean. And nostalgia has made it to mean um, something very different to fundamentalists, evangelicals, and progressives. Has Nostalgia has made it mean something very different to those who seek historical accuracy, you know? So this kind of emotion plays with us about what we need from a perception of God, what we need from theology, what we need from religion. Um, And so what we create around these stories, these historical stories that may have actually been told is nostalgia laced with memory, laced with human need, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's where creativity can really occur. I think we do need different things from these stories. Um, Any one of us who has ever felt left out institutionally, um, disregarded, disembodied, rejected, will need to hear that these texts are actually about radical inclusion. And anyone who feels fearful of, let's say, death and dying needs to hear that through Jesus Christ, you will be redeemed and saved and sent to heaven. You know, so I think where I get sort of this cognitive dissonance is a little bit around the question of what is true and a little bit around the question of what has Christianity become actually, right? It, it was this one thing in the early days of a movement of inclusion, of radical acceptance, and it's become something different. So which is it? 
you know? Well, I want to um, get you and me to hold each other accountable also for um, being able to distinguish between what we need mm. and what we want. Mm. Mm-hmm. 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 Because what my ego wants is to be comfortable. Sure and secure and all of that and so you notice that this past sunday i have started introducing ordinary life in a different way mm-hmm. and that is that it's declaring to and from sacred mystery that we're willing to be used to participate in what needs to happen for the healing and wholeness of creation And that we are also asking that we get our egos out of the way so that we can experience and express our true selves. Mm -hmm. That, I I stole all that from Thomas Merton, by the way. But um, (laughs) Thomas Merton maybe stole it from someone else, you know. (laughs) He may have stolen it from somewhere else, but it, it is there, you know, what people want, um, it's gonna go. What, what some people want is going to go against what the community of empowerment needs. Mm-hmm. If it's going to empower everybody to be full participants in the human community, we need things that some people are not willing to give and are afraid to give or whatever it is. But For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I just thought, you know, that's interesting. Um, Victor Frankel and Thomas Merton probably didn't know each other, but do you think? That's an interesting question. I have no mm-hmm. idea. Mm-hmm. But there's they a were, they were contemporaries. Yeah, yeah. They um they lived in the same couple decades in the in the adulthood of their life and had very different life experiences. Obviously, Victor Frankel was in a concentration camp, you know, and his questions about. I, I, I love that essential question of his work, which is to, to ask not what do I expect from life, but what does life expect from me, which is what you're also mm-hmm. saying as an introduction to ordinary life. What does life expect from me? And how can I fill that with my authentic self? Mm-hmm. Um, we call it the sacred Someone else may call it life. Someone else may call it reality. Someone, you know, it's, it's, to me, it's all the same. I I don't mean to be flip about people's beliefs, but I think language helps us to address things in a way that we are comfortable, but that language of reality, um, God, sacred life, to me, all means the same thing. What does life expect from me? What does my neighbor need from me? Yeah. And I would say that that's one of the expectations um, that we cannot fulfill this project. So, you know, there's this universe principle of unity and diversity, right? That, Mm -hmm. That the more diverse and complex a system becomes, the more it is actually unified and actually working together. Uh, that's, that's kind of a physics idea. That's, um, a cosmology idea. That's a biology idea. Our bodies work that way. Um, but 
how does it work socially? And I think we're in this like intense stage of um, difference, of differentiation. And I'm trying to imagine through that, what does it look like to have unity and social differentiation, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that I will that will always have to be one of the core principles that we treat people the way we want to be treated, <laughs> that we love our neighbor as ourselves. Otherwise we cannot grow as a species into that principle of unity and diversity. And there, there is another side of this won't need thing that we're talking about right now. Mm-hmm. I said, you know, it's what our neighbor needs from us. There's the side of what do I need from my neighbor and, mm-hmm. and what I need from many of my neighbors is that they tell me the truth. Mm-hmm. And that I have a willingness to hear the truth about what is. Um, I was also going to say, pick up the dog poop in there in your yard. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which is sort of a metaphor, right? Like we do need from, from our neighbors to, to clean up after themselves, to take responsibility for themselves, for us to take responsibility for ourselves and to have reciprocity in that space. You know, this is a tiny thing that I'm uh-huh. about to say. It's uh-huh. sort of, it's almost on the level of the turn signal issue. I was gonna say it has to have something to do with the turn signal. Uh, you know, I have a dog. You have two dogs. Yeah. So I, I go out and walk my dog, and I'm a responsible dog owner. So when my dog relieves himself, I pick it up in a dog poop bag and carry it to a place where I can dispose of it usually back home. However, I notice that other people, they carry a dog poop bag, they pick up their dog poop and leave it on the sidewalk. Oh, I don't leave it on the sidewalk, but I do look for the first available trash can. I do too, but do you not run across people who just leave it anywhere? I did actually find a bag of it on my, on the ledge of my fence the other day. And I was a little curious. Why would someone leave me this? <laughs> it's just a message. It's just rude. It's just <laughs> absolutely rude. Yeah. Yeah. I was driving to work today and the person right in front of me turned into a very popular place here in Houston called Milk and Cookies. Yeah. Tiny's. <laughs> yeah. And they, I thought, you know, I guess when they, I guess when they took CD players out of the cars, they also took turn signals out. <laughs> they must not have put those back in. But we're being cheeky. But on the but the real question beneath that is, those are our neighbors too. Like, how do we live right. with the proverbial neighbors who don't use their t- turn signals and leave their dog poop on your fence? But, Absolutely. Yeah, and that I think is the is you know because we don't all come to the same agreements. We don't mm-hmm. all come to the same agreements about beliefs um, and belief systems. And I don't even know that we come to the same agreements about love your neighbor as yourself, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that becomes for me a real wrestling. How do we love people who don't have that agreement, who aren't mm-hmm. asking these questions, even if they're not doing it the way we would, how do we love the people who are not asking, how do I love my neighbor as myself? That's a tough one. Yeah. And when is it appropriate to have a um, good and strong and necessary boundary and love someone from afar? Mm. You know? I um, have both people I see for counseling and uh, people who are dear friends of mine who are physicians. 
And um, not all of them, but right now, the most of them are really working on what we would call the front lines of dealing with uh, COVID patients. And um, one of them said to me the other day, he said, um, he's a surgeon, but he's also filling in in other places right now to help because the healthcare workers are just stressed to the extreme. He said, you know, when I was in my training in surgery and somebody would come into the emergency room having been in an accident because of their drunk driving, it was very difficult to have compassion for that person because they participated in their own illness. Right now, everybody, I read this just this morning, everybody who has died in the Houston hospital system in the last 24 hours from COVID was not vaccinated. Mm -hmm. They participated in their own death. And he, he, this was a guy who just said, it's hard for me to have compassion for these people. So how do we have compassion for the neighbor who is really outside of the value system, their, their behavior is outside of the value system that seems to be one that cares for the whole community. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it's how do we change this mindset of first me, then others, as opposed to me and others, or what another of our favorite philosophers, uh, Buber said, I vow, you know, there is no distinction between I and thou, that I and thou need, want, live in, live, move, and have our being in the same existence. Mm -hmm. It's in, but I think in our society, and I imagine other societies too, we've gotten so locked into first me and then others. <laughs> and to some degree, it's true as grownups, we do have to come home to ourselves before, or maybe I want to say, as we are also coming home to the world. You know, they're not so distinct. It's not so linear, but um, many of us stay in that first me place. Mm -hmm. So we go to beyond scripture, we go beyond creed, yeah. we go beyond doctrine, and we go beyond religion. Mm -hmm. Another person that I read in seminary was introduced to in seminary and a few years ago he experienced a, a resurgence of popularity was Dietrich Bonhoeffer mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. who was in the United States decided to go back to Germany and to do what he could to defeat Nazism he ended up being captured and executed very near the end of, of the war. And Bonhoeffer talked about cheap grace. Mm. He talked about religionless Christianity. Mm. He talked about a willingness to live before God without God. Mm. And these are the things that in our vocabulary, I believe the writer of John was trying to say mm. in the stuff that he wrote. I hope you will bring that Sunday. And that makes me want to read Bonhoeffer. <laughs> well, Bonhoeffer did experience this uh, Letters and Papers from Prison is the book that I would recommend. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'm making a note. 
Because this is, this is something that I think about a lot. How do we live as if, um, I am not here at all to enforce, even imply, or even suggest that everyone believe in this God, right? But where, and I don't want to sound condescending and I don't want to minimize someone who is really committed to being an atheist and, and probably anti-religion, but I want to say that believing in life and believing in God are the same thing. I, I, and I realized the difficulty in saying that because you don't want to say to your atheist friend, oh, you say you believe in life, but really that's God, right? It, it, that sounds so dismissive of, of the belief of an atheist. Well, let me take a swipe at what you yeah. just said. Okay, in my way. <laughs> I am here to get everybody to believe in love yeah and what john said is god is, is love. love yeah and um ah the third way way to go bill <laughs> so, so i just i just interrupted my own thought i would love for us to have matt russell on as a guest on this yes. podcast because i heard matt say in a in a group meeting not long ago something about uh and i'll let him say it he says what love conquers is the ego and that's what that's what i added to the opening that i'm going to do every sunday for a while is that our 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 prayer to and from sacred mystery we're addressing and addressing from we're in the community of empowerment and we speak from the community of empowerment is Let's get our damn egos out of the way. Let's give up this, I need to win and be first, as you said, mentality, mm-hmm. so that we can have a, a more healing, wholesome, healthy community. Mm-hmm. That and was, on that, I'm yeah. going to go home. Okay, go home. I think no. that requires us to take love very seriously and to have a serious discourse in the public about love. So yeah. here we go. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, I'll see you Sunday. Okie doke. Bye-bye.